Hey there, everybody. Uh, I am not particularly mobile this morning, having had knee surgery on Wednesday, and I'm in this big chunky brace now, and uh, I'm not really going to be walking normally for six weeks and just wasn't sure I could make it in today. So I thought this is the last uh, lesson on the Lord's Supper, and so I thought I'd just do a video for you guys. We're looking at Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 174 and 175, which uh, last time we looked at preparing for the Lord's Supper, and this time we're looking at how to benefit from the Lord's Supper in its present use, and then also um, what to do after you've had the Lord's Supper. So learning both what to do before, during, and after the Lord's Supper are things that our catechism walks us through. And uh, just to note, there are no Sunday school classes for the month of May. So this is the last one we got, and uh, we are going to finish this Lord's Supper series with these two questions. And for the whole series on the sacraments, we are going to miss the last, the next two questions are the similarities and differences between baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we didn't have time to get to. But if you just listen to the baptism series from the fall and compare it to the Lord's Supper series, I think you'll have most of the answers <laughs> in there. So when it was question 174, what's required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? And the answer says that it's required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, and affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, and thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces, in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing their covenant with God and love to all the saints. Now, there's a lot there. Uh, we'll, we'll go through it line by line. And even though it would be hard to imagine being able to do this all at once in the Lord's Supper, um, a lot of this, these sorts of things we just do naturally. It's just a part of the whole experience. But being able to think about and focus on some of them in particular, I think will be helpful. So what's required of us when we receive the Lord's Supper? Well, first it's required that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. With all holy reverence and attention to wait upon God in that ordinance. So the, the call here is to a reverential attention. And it's been said before that attention is at the heart of worship. The things we give our main focus and attention to um, are often the objects of our worship. And we want a reverential attention. That is, we want to have a sort of disposition in our heart and spirit that acknowledges God as God. And in the sacrament, that acknowledges these sacraments as sacraments of God, no ordinary elements. Hebrews 12, 28 says, that wherefore we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We want to offer God acceptable worship, uh, a worship that properly recognizes God's prerogatives as king and ruler of creation. Um, we're to remember that the Lord's Supper is a sacred rite. It is an act of worship. It's no mere meal. Um, and we don't participate in the sacraments flippantly or lightly. That it says, with reverential attention, we wait upon God in that ordinance. This isn't just something we go through the motions of, but we want to seriously consider God and what God has called us to in the Lord's Supper.
um, to wait upon God. Um, this phrase is used a lot in the Psalms, and I like um, to take it both ways, both to wait on God like a server waits on a table. That is, we come, we're serving God, but also that more idea of waiting for God. And worship is both. We wait on God in our prayers and our praises, but then we wait for God as he speaks to us and moves in our hearts by his word and spirit. So we're supposed to wait on God in that ordinance. Second, it says we are to diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. And really, all, that's the whole part of it, right? So don't tune out the whole beginning of the Lord's Supper where the pastor is saying the words of institution or praying or even serving it. Um, we want to be attentive to every part of the Lord's Supper. Um, diligently observe the elements and actions. We're to heedfully discern the Lord's body, right? To take care, as we saw previously, to uh, discern both that this is Christ's body, right? It's a worshipful, reverent act. And secondly, to discern that we are a part of Christ's body in the church, and therefore our relationships really matter, that we be reconciled to each other. A third, we're called to affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings. Um, Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, um, especially in the breaking of the bread, the shedding of the blood represented in the wine. We're to remember Christ's death. And I like the word that it uses there. It says to affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings. Um, our recollections stir up certain affections within us. If you were to say, remember a really great time with your parents growing up, a wonderful Christmas, or a special moment with your spouse before you were married, remembering those great times, maybe remembering your marriage or the birth of your first child, it stirs up affections within you. And as we meditate on what Christ has done for us, our affections for him are to be stirred up, especially remembering that this is such a sign of God's love for us. Remembering, as Romans 5 says, one would scarcely die for a righteous person, but that while we were still sinners, God died for us and laid down his life for us. And so let's be people with affections stirred up for Christ. Uh, next, it says, thereby to stir themselves up to a vigorous exercise of their graces, um, stirring our, our um, specific actions within us, grace-motivated actions, the first thing is in judging ourselves, right? So we looked a lot at self-examination previously. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says that if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, right? To really consider, where in my life am I out of step with the Holy Spirit? And where do I need to repent and get back into the line with how the Spirit uh, is living and moving on the earth? Um, we're to be stirred up to sorrowing over sin, I love this verse in Zechariah 12.10, where the, pro the prophecy says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The prophecy is here is that even the people who crucified Christ would be brought to repentance and look on the one whom they've pierced and mourn for their sin. And we're called to do the same thing. Um, though we were not the people who drove the nails into Christ's hands, yet it is our sins that were the cause of it. Um, our sins, if you can imagine your own sins being the specific nails driven into Christ, we ought to mourn over... Um, 
of what our sins have caused to our great Lord. The Lord's Supper, as we remember Christ's death, should cause us to mourn over the sin that made that death necessary. Next, we're called to towards a greater um, earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ. Um, even as this meal, it represents physical and um, yeah, physical thirsts and food being satiated and satisfied. Though we don't eat it to have an actual meal, um, a piece will do. It's sacramental, right? Not actual. And even as that reminds us of hungers and thirsts being satisfied, we're reminded that Christ is the bread of life, and that if we eat him, we will never hunger again. Or, as he told the woman at the well in John 4, that he is um, the one who comes and drinks of his water will never thirst again, but it'll be a fountain of living waters. And this picture of hungering and thirsting after Christ is all over uh, the scripture, the final picture in Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that's a thirst come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Right? We want to take of that water of life, find our deepest longings and greatest desires fulfilled in feasting upon Christ. It's, it continues feeding on him by faith receiving of his fullness and trusting his merits, okay? Feeding on him by faith, receiving his fullness, trusting his merits. And really what we can sum this all up to say is that when we, in the Lord's Supper, we set our mind to consider all the blessings that are ours in Christ because of his death and resurrection, all the blessings of forgiveness, eternal life, sanctification, regeneration, peace, hope, all these things that are ours in Christ, that ought to leave us with such a satisfied, contented feeling that as we consider this, it's like having supped on Christ and just been so satisfied with all that God is to us and has done to us through him. Um, we do this rejoicing of his love and giving thanks for his grace, right? Those affections being stirred up for Christ. It is the Lord's Supper is really just a picture of God's love for us. Uh, that's why the early Christians called it love feasts. It's a picture of God's love for us and our love for him, pictured in a symbolic uh, marriage supper, a symbolic meal uh, at the family table. I love Ephesians 3, 17 to 19, where Paul's praying that Christ would dwell in the hearts of his people by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's the call, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. How do you know something that passes knowledge? It's not something that can be in all um, estimations attained with some data, some intellectual spreadsheet and calculation, right? If your spouse asked you, um, what do you love about me? Just tell me that you love me. And you uh, turned it into a spreadsheet. Like, well, I know that it means this and this and that and the other. Uh, you can't truly express it. And I think that's perhaps one reason why God gave us the supper. Because it's this, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. And there's something of the love of Christ that is uh, just brought before us in the Lord's Supper. In tasting the wine, in tasting the bread, seeing, smelling, the whole experience it communicates the beauty of love 
the beauty of Christ's love for us in a way that sometimes our uh, words and dictums don't quite capture. And God's given this sacrament to us as a gift so that we will, um, as, as has been said before, not, not that we get a different Christ, but that we get Christ differently. We, we, we uh, conceptually receive of Christ in a different way in the Lord's Supper than in um, the spoken word. It is a visual word, a visible word. Uh, we are called to be renewing our covenant with God. Uh, th that's why a lot of people say the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony. That's what it's been called. Kind of like if you know people have renewed their wedding vows. Um, it's a repeated reminder of our obligations before God, that he is our God, we are his people, we submit to him, we obey him, love him, and he is committed to us. He's faithful and loving towards us. So we're reminded of our covenant relationship with God. And really, here's a little tip. Um, when you hear the word covenant, sometimes it can just sound nebulous and uh, difficult to understand. But uh, you can often just substitute the word relationship for the word covenant. Um, the covenant we have with God is the, the sort of relationship we have with God. It's a, it's a relational word. And we're called to renew it and, lastly, to love all the saints. Discerning the body, all, right, it implies us discerning the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper ought to stir us up to love uh, the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears and the noses in the body of Christ. So that is 174. Uh, lastly, question 175. What is the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something I think about very often. Uh, how am I supposed to act after the Lord's Supper? And because this is odd, this is probably worth thinking about. And this is something I'm guessing most of us could start implementing almost immediately into our patterns of worship and something we're probably lacking. So it says, the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is seriously to consider how they have behaved themselves therein and with what success, if they find quickening and comfort to bless God for it, beg the continuance of it, watch against relapses, fulfill their vows, and encourage themselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. But if they find no present benefit, more exactly to review their preparation to and carriage at the sacrament, in both which, if they can approve themselves to God and have their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. But if they see they have failed in either, they are to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence. Again, a lot of words there, a lot to actually think about. So to, again, break this down line by line, the duty of Christians after they've received the sacrament is seriously to consider how they've behaved themselves therein and with what success. Uh, it's kind of funny things like, hey, was that a successful Lord's Supper? Um, how did I behave myself in it? But, you know, there's something there to say, was it successful? Now, the question is, what are we aiming at for success? And I think it's sometimes different than we think. Now, um, if we broaden this to thinking more generally of what was a successful worship service for us, um, we know often the main question people ask after worship is say, oh, hey, what did you get out of worship today, or how was it for you? And Julie and I stopped doing that a while ago because then it felt like uh, it was, you know, just determined on, well, what did I learn something? Did something jump out at me? 
But we started asking each other a different question after worship, which was really this. Did you actually worship God today? Uh, it's so easy to sit through a worship service and not really actually worship God, which means to give God our focused attention in every act of worship, to be thinking and meaning the words we're singing and praying, to be hearing God's word as his word, whether it's something new or something we've heard before. The goal in worship is just to give God the worship he deserves in giving our attention to him. At the very least, whether you learn something or have some revelation, worship is about acknowledging that God deserves our attention. He deserves the best of our attention on the first day of the week and deserves our worship. And so in the Lord's Supper, the question is, did you worship in it? Did you think about Christ in it? Did you engage it? Uh, regardless of whether you think you got some special feeling out of it. And it's important to consider after worship, after the Lord's Supper, did I really worship God today? Um, in Mark 9, 7, it's the transfiguration and God speaks to the people there and he, um, Christ is transfigured and the, Mark 9, 7 says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Or other translations, hear him. The authority of Christ is such that he is to be heard. His voice is to be attended to above all others. And so when we're listening to a sermon, we're not just listening to a person, but we want our ears open to, this is the voice of Christ speaking to us. Now it continues. If you find quickening and comfort in the Lord's Supper, to bless God for it, right? Sometimes you just feel so refreshed after worship. You feel re revived and renewed. And if that's the case, Praise and thank God that that was so. God didn't have to bless you that way. God didn't have to give you that sense of refreshing. So give him thanks for it. Um, and then to beg the continuance of it, right? We want those flames that are stoked up in public worship to continue smoldering throughout the week in our private worship, to beg that God would let us continue to walk in communion with him, receiving of him. Um, David prays in Psalm 3610, Continue your loving kindness to them that know thee, thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Just saying, God, continue speaking to me. God, continue loving me. Continue leading me this whole week long. Uh, the call is, after Lord's Supper, to watch against relapses, right? We're called to self-examination in the supper. And if we've found areas of our life that we need to bring back into line, uh, to watch that we don't lose that. And to watch also that we don't lose that God-centered mind that mind of christ that we gain in worship and um in first corinthians 10 um paul talks about what in a sense is a prototypical communion service and baptism that israel went through the red sea which was like a baptism for them all they drank of the rock that was christ but they kept falling away into sin and grumbling and so he says in first corinthians 10 3 um with many of them god wasn't pleased they were overthrown in the wilderness Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Um, we're supposed to take an example from Israel that fell away repeatedly, that we in the Lord's Supper don't fall away from the God in whom we've believed. We're to watch against relapses. And that's why we need to have um, worship every week. We fall away so quickly, and that weekly reminder is so important. Uh, next, the call is to fulfill their vows. And we've said before, we don't take particularly many vows these days, but um, the vows we've taken to God in baptism, to be holy the Lord's, to live for him, to receive him as our God, 
that's a vow that we are keeping and being encouraged to in the Lord's Supper. Um, just like in marriage, you're continually, you need to be continually reminded of the marriage vows you've made and to keep those vows, to be wholly true to your spouse. Um, next, it is given after the Lord's Supper, um, we are to encourage ourselves to a frequent attendance on that ordinance. Um, so interesting, right? It says, hey, frequently attend the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it doesn't say how frequent that should be, but it says, the Catechism says that's something we should do frequently, right? This is a means of grace for us. It's a way of getting Christ differently than we normally do. And so why would we not long and desire to know the love of God shown in the Lord's Supper frequently? First uh, Corinthians 11, it's... Um, Paul's recounting what Christ said, and he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's breath, death until he come. Um, he says, often as you do this, um, which has an idea of oftenness in it. Um, we know in Acts 2, the early church, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And they continually daily, continued daily with one accord in the temple, Breaking bread from house to house, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, uh, it's not um, no one. It's not definitive whether in Acts two it's talking about the Lord's Supper or not. But the early church was frequently eating together and meeting together, um, and they were at least consistent in their practices of worship. Um, in John Calvin's Geneva, they actually had worship services every morning, every day of the week. And if you can imagine a time before most people even were able to own a Bible, uh, to hear God's word every day, they would basically do their devotions together and have formal worship services every morning. And Calvin wanted to do the Lord's Supper each one of those. He wanted to have communion every day uh, to enjoy God in that ordinance. Um, and then, continuing here, frequently attending the ordinance, and then this is interesting, it says, but if they find no present benefit, more exactly to review their preparation to and carriage at the sacrament. So if you come away from the Lord's Supper saying, hey, I don't know if I got anything out of that, I don't feel spiritually blessed or refreshed at all, uh, to really think, you know, did I properly like prepare myself? Was I prayerfully attentive? Did I examine myself? Uh, did I come to it with faith and expectancy? Uh, was I praying for God to bless me in it? And perhaps the fault was mine, not the fault was God's. I think of David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, try my heart. Know me, try my thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We want to enjoy God in the Lord's Supper. And so we want to review uh, perhaps at times why we didn't. Um, it says in both which, okay? So whether you were felt like you were particularly blessed in the Lord's Supper or not, it says, if they can approve themselves to God and their own consciences, they are to wait for the fruit of it in due time. So it's saying, you may have not felt any particular refreshing or reviving or renewing in the Lord's Supper, but if your conscience is clear that you prepared for it, examined yourself, sought the Lord in it, attended with your mind on it, uh, then your conscience is clean. And you might not see fruit of it in that moment, but you're trusting that God will use his means of grace to bless you. Uh, Jesus tells that parable of the uh, seed that grows, and you don't see it at first as it's growing under the ground. But then you see it just a bit, and then in time, the full corn in the ear. 
Um, sometimes we don't see how God's working in us, but there's little uh, bits of growth that we don't notice. But if they see they have failed in either, they're to be humbled and to attend upon it afterwards with more care and diligence. Um, and that's it. If you feel like, hey, I didn't prepare for the Lord's Supper, when asking after that question, after the service, did you worship today? You say, actually, I, I was lazy in my mind. I didn't engage in the service. I didn't worship God in that sacrament. Um, to be humble, to just confess your sin to God, admit your weakness and frailty, and do better. Uh, pray for the Holy Spirit. Attend upon it after, with more care and diligence. It's not something to just be um, mopey about and say, oh, well, poor me, but say, hey, I miss out on an opportunity to enjoy God and glorify him in the supper. Next time, I want to really engage. I want to really do that. Uh, to be humbled and attend upon it after with more care and diligence. And that's something we can all learn from this, is that there is more for us to receive in the Lord's Supper than we've received. It's such a simple, you, someone might often say it, even say a simplistic ordinance, but it's a picture that's worth a thousand words. The way we get Christ and see him in it, there are depths of love for us to explore that we haven't yet experienced. There are things God has for us in the Lord's Supper that we haven't yet received. And so we want to come to it expectantly. We want to attend upon it reverentially and uh, really give ourselves to God's means of grace. If God is the smartest, wisest, greatest being of all time, and he has said, this is a way in which I will give myself to you and you will give myself yourself to me, that is important. That means that God has something for us. There. Think of the thousands of acts of worship God could have instituted other than just our basic word and prayer, other than just our communication with God, God gave us only two visual symbols, baptism with water and the Lord's Supper. That means these are special. Uh, God has given them to us for a reason, and so let's use them. Let's be excited about them. And uh, let's, together as a church, seek to be a church that doesn't see the Lord's Supper as some added-on, tacked-on, random part of worship, but as a gift, as a core essential way that God reveals himself to us and especially reveals the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be a gospel-centered church and no better way to be a gospel-centered church than to frequently proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ and the Lord's Supper as a family. It's a, commun it's a family meal. And so it encourages us to our one another's as well. It calls us into fellowship with God and one another. Uh, praise God for the Lord's Supper. Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will bless us, bless to us many, many more Lord's Suppers in our life. Lord, that we would enjoy Christ and just uh, be blown away by how well you have loved us and what you've done for us. Lord, would you help us to be a church that always proclaims Christ's death until he comes and loves you and loves your worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Uh, enjoy a bit of a longer break before service. And remember, no Sunday school in the month of May. And uh, I would appreciate your prayers for just a speedy, quick recovery uh, for my knee. Uh, just recovered from this knee surgery here. So, uh, thanks you so thanks so much, and uh, God bless.